You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 9, the second part of the three perspectives, the one called the Soul Perspective, given in Dornach on the 21st of July, 1923. Regarding the spiritual life of our times, if we are impartial enough, we must notice that since the second half of the 19th century, the soul has gradually disappeared. Our contemporary civilization lacks soul. And if an individual human being wishes to wake up to the inner life, then they have to do so, not by participating in the concerns of our society, but in solitude. Generally, we've abandoned the practice of observing contemporary life with any alertness. For external observation, which started in the 19th century, there have been any number of phenomena which should really have prompted people to sit up and take notice of what is happening in the life of the mind. But such phenomena have passed without leaving hardly a trace. If they had at least been formulated, then through being expressed in language they could have made an impression on people deep enough to wake them up. But this wasn't the case. I'd like to start today by looking at a phenomenon which, seen superficially, might only raise a smile from the one person. Another might view it historically as one of many aberrant world views. The third might rage against it. But mainly, I want to just try and simply formulate the facts of what I mean for you. In the last two decades of the 19th century, the question of who was the cleverest person of the age became important to me. Of course, such things are always relative, so I am asking you not to take this too literally, but with a grain of salt, and to look at it as a kind of typical feature of our time. Our age is the age of intellectualism. The intellect has developed to great heights. We have to ask ourselves, what is the human intellect dependent on during earthly life? Of course, the power of the intellect, the activity of the intellect, depends on the human being's soul, which we'll be looking at later. And it depends on what humans have within themselves, unconsciously in earthly life, as the etheric organism, the body of formative forces, as the astral body and as the I organization, capital. In the current phase of development, however, human beings haven't reached the stage of actually realizing the activity of the intellect as it lives in these three elements of human nature. If humans didn't have a physical body, then the intellect would have to remain silent for the duration of earthly life. It would be similar to how a person feels when they walk toward a wall. If they go straight ahead and don't look at their hands or feet, 
then they see nothing of themselves. But if the wall is a mirror, then they see themselves. The intellect would be like the person who doesn't see themselves. They wouldn't be able to perceive themselves if they didn't have a physical body which mirrors or reflects the activity. Thus, in our age, humans owe the magnitude of their intellect to the reflection of their inner soul activity through the physical body. People wouldn't mistake the mirror for themselves. However, with the intellect, they make this mistake. People mistake what is only in the physical sphere a reflection of the intellect for the intellect itself. They devote themselves to the mirror image. But then the mirror image rules over them. In a way, people abandon themselves with their intellect completely to the physical body. If human beings managed to surrender their intellect completely to the physical body, then it would become almost perfect. But if we let our inner life hold sway, then we stumble into all kinds of feelings and desires, prejudices, sympathies and antipathies and bring them into the intellect. We make it imperfect. If, however, we become completely dry, sober and cold, or if, as Hammerling depicts in the title Homunculus, we unite the male soullessness of the billionaire with the female soullessness of the mermaid, then we would be able to think in accordance with the physical body. Then it would just about be possible to develop the intellect to the level of perfection attainable in the current age. Then we'd learn to think in such a way that only the intellect would be active in us, as if it were an automaton and could develop itself to a high degree of perfection. This is what I said to myself in the last two decades of the 19th century, and I asked myself, who is the cleverest person in modern civilization, in the sense that they have perfected their intellect to this relatively high level? Now probably you're going to laugh, but I really couldn't think of anyone else as the cleverest person in our current civilization than Edward von Hartmann, the philosopher of the unconscious. This is definitely not some audacious paradox of mine, but something that revealed itself to me as I studied the last decades of the 19th century with a certain soulfulness. You can imagine that I'd have a great respect for the man I'd chosen as the cleverest person of the age. This is why I dedicated what I had to say about the theory of cognition in my book titled Truth and Knowledge to Edward von Hartmann. So I'm not speaking disrespectfully, but rather out of a deep regard. What lies behind von Hartmann's philosophy was the fact that initially he was trained as an officer. He had made first lieutenant when he had problems with his knee, so that he then started to develop the intellectuality that had been destined for militarism and transformed it, metamorphosed it, into philosophy. It's interesting that out of these beginnings there developed what I can only formulate as Edward von Hartmann being the cleverest person in the 19th century. This is why he could see so clearly what it was possible to see in the last third of the 19th century. He understood human consciousness insofar as it was earth-bound 
or tied to the physical body. Being intelligent, he didn't deny the spirit, but he relegated it to the sphere of the unconscious, which, not having a body, not being closely bound to, but always beyond the physical, and being therefore spiritual, can only be unconscious. You can only be conscious, so said von Hartmann, in the body. Even if the body is not everything, even if the spirit exists, it can't be conscious, and thus is unconscious. Hartmann continues, When human beings go through the gates of death, they shouldn't expect that they can then achieve a different consciousness, for beyond earthly consciousness is only the unconscious. The human being then enters the sphere of the unconscious. Unconscious spirit is everywhere where there is no human consciousness. Edward von Hartmann's philosophy is a spiritual philosophy, but of the unconscious spirit. Consciousness only exists in the human body, even though spirit is everywhere, but it's a spirit that knows nothing of the world or of itself, an unconscious spirit. Isn't it absolutely clear that this unconscious spirit can never penetrate anything outside itself except through the physical human body? This is clear from the start. But this tells us something very important. It tells us that this intellect that allows itself such judgment about the unconscious knows no love. I'm not saying that Fred Hartman knew no love, but that his intellect which was why he distinguished himself, knew no love. A loveless intellect cannot build any bridges. Therefore it is confined to itself and can't gain consciousness. It stays in the sphere of the unconscious. We could also say it stays in the sphere of lovelessness. This already indicates that it's also the sphere of soullessness. For where love can't appear, soulfulness slowly disappears. And this is how we sense the loveless atmosphere of most of civilization in the second half of the 19th century, on whose shoulders our own culture stands. It's remarkable where Edward von Hartmann ended up through cultivating this unconscious spirit bound to lovelessness. He studied this world of earthly life that gives humans their consciousness, But what would happen if we humans couldn't live in our bodies, if we couldn't come down into the body and unite with it every time we wake up? What would befall us then? When we wake up as earthly beings, our eye and our astral body, which in sleep were separated from our physical and etheric bodies, return to them. The eye and the astral body reunite themselves intimately with the physical and etheric bodies, and become as one with them. And as long as we earthly humans are awake, we have to speak of an intimate unity of the soul spiritual and the physical corporeal. However, if you separate the soul spiritual from the physical corporeal, as does Edward von Hartmann intellectually, then you would have the following reality. It would be as if when we woke up and entered our physical and etheric bodies, instead of merging with them, We just inhabited them without fusing with them. According to von Hartmann, the unconscious spirit inhabits the body and becomes conscious through it 
during physical earthly life. If it really happened as he thinks it does, then we would enter our physical and etheric bodies when we wake up, but we wouldn't unite with them, and would only inhabit them as if we inhabited a house, which we would then explore from the inside. We would be inside it, but separate. What would happen then? Now, if our soul spiritual didn't unite with the physical body and remained separate from it, then we would feel pain, which would be quite unbearable for our soul. For all pain has its origins in the fact that an organ is not functioning properly, that the organ is sick or that we've been ousted from part of our physical body. If we were totally ousted from our physical body and were just an appendage to it, then the pain we experienced would be indescribable. Every morning when we wake up, we're threatened in a way with this pain. But we manage to overcome it by immersing ourselves in the physical and etheric bodies and uniting with them. Now, von Hartmann was certainly no initiate. He was only an intellectual, albeit the best intellectual, of the second half of the 19th century. He just put into thought form what I've described to you as a reality. He imagined the world as being such that our eye and our astral body wouldn't unite with the physical and etheric bodies. He thought the relationship of human beings to their bodies was as I've described above. This led him to the following conclusion. He ended up in a terrible pessimism. This is the pessimism we would experience if on waking up we were separated from our physical body. Von Hartmann had it through thinking. What is the result of his thinking? The world is as bad as could be. The world is full of evil and pain, and the only real cultural achievement that humanity could attain would be to gradually obliterate it, to destroy it. Then, at the end of the title, Philosophy of the Unconscious, he offers us an ideal. Edward von Hartmann lived in an age when technology was developing apace, and when there were more and more machines to perform various tasks. If you had looked then at what was becoming possible through machines, you'd have been fascinated by their potential. And if you'd exponentiated what machines could do and what perfecting them could mean for the world, then you'd have had an enormous suggestive force. Edward von Hartmann surrendered himself to this suggestive force. And he thought that humanity, having now developed the intellect, would become increasingly intelligent and would gradually have to realize that they must destroy this world. They would have to develop a machine which could bore into the middle of the earth and then through some technological feat would then proceed to blow up this whole evil earth and everything on it and fling it into the furthest reaches of the cosmos. We have to allow that the thinking of other intellectuals of that time, even if they weren't as clever as von Hartmann, was based on the same fundamentals, but that they didn't have the courage to think it through to the bitter end. We can even say that if we just faced what the intellect alone could give us, with no input from the rest of the world, then this ideal of von Hartmann's could seem, in a certain sense, inevitable. I've already said 
that people didn't express contemporary phenomena in words. But we should try to get a real understanding of title, The Philosophy of the Unconscious, which put this proposal to humanity in 1869. Edward von Hartmann was really much cleverer than the rest, because after putting this ideal before humanity, he actually did something which I have often spoken about. In the same book where he puts this ideal before us, he speaks of the spirit, even if it is the unconscious spirit. But still, it is spirit. This was a terrible sin, because science had come as far as having banned spirit from its discourse, even in that harmless form of remaining completely unconscious. Thus, other clever people regarded the philosophy of the unconscious, which had made quite a name for itself in the literary world, as dilettantish. So, Edward von Hartmann played a trick on them, a rebuttal of the philosophy of the unconscious by an unknown author was published, which thoroughly disproved this spirit philosophy. The title of the book was, title, The Unconscious from the Perspective of Physiology and Evolutionary Theory. This anonymous text copied the spirit, I should really say unspirit, of those other intellectuals so well that the most distinguished scientific minds of that time Oskar Schmidt, Ernst Haeckel, and many others wrote reviews full of praise about it and said, quote, At last someone has polished off this dilettante, Edward von Hartmann. What a pity we don't know who this anonymous person is. If they revealed themselves to us, we'd accept them as one of our own. Close quote. Of course, after they'd all given the book lots of publicity, it promptly sold out and had to be reissued thus titled The Unconscious from the Perspective of Physiology and Evolutionary Theory by von Hartmann, appeared in a second edition. So, you see, through this, von Hartmann proved how clever he was, because he could be clever in his own right, and then he could outdo the opposition in their own field. Yesterday I said that psychoanalysis is dilettantism squared, so as soul characteristics always potentiate themselves, Today I should say that Edward von Hartmann's intellect was cleverness squared, cleverness multiplied by itself. We shouldn't sleepwalk past such a phenomenon of our age as we normally do. We should name it and hold it up before our souls. Then we'd really see the absurdity of our times. Why was Edward von Hartmann so clever? He was so clever because he really looked at all the notable events of his time with eagle eyes. He was, in a way, the natural scientist of philosophy. That's almost as if you would say the pastry of the soup, but still you could say the natural scientist of philosophy. Now, if we want to avoid falling into these traps, then we have to look carefully where we step by examining such phenomena empirically. If we want to find our way out of the confusion of our times, then we have to look at what human beings really carry in their soul. If we move from the physical human being gradually over to the spiritual, to the soul level, then, as we saw yesterday, we come first to the etheric body, or body of formative forces. As a child of his times, von Hartmann knew nothing of such an etheric body. He didn't go from looking at external, physical nature up to the level next to the physical, to the etheric body or body of formative forces. 
we know that when a person goes to sleep, their eye and their astral body separate from the physical body and the etheric body. The etheric body remains behind in the physical body. If you only use your earthly consciousness, you can never really know the nature of the etheric body. When you wake up, you immerse yourself with your eye and your astral body in the etheric body. Then you're inside. Then you can only experience what you've brought with you in your eye and your astral body. A being with a much more developed organization would have to come down into the etheric body while you're asleep, while the eye and the astral body are outside. Such a being could really study the nature of the etheric body objectively and would be able to find the real etheric body that you left behind with the physical body when you fell asleep. If you could see what you left behind, you'd find that this etheric body or body of formative forces is in a real earthly sense, and also in a much higher sense, a paragon of wisdom. If we look closely, we can see that when we leave our physical and etheric bodies at night, then the two that remain behind are much cleverer than we are when we're in them. This is because in our eye and our astral bodies, we're the children of earth evolution and of moon evolution. The etheric body, however, goes back to the sun stage of development and the physical body even further back to the Saturn stage. They are at a much higher level of development. At present we can't match what our eye and our astral body have developed with what the etheric body has gathered in wisdom over the course of time from the sun stage onward. We could say that our etheric body is concentrated wisdom. Now, if, as human beings, we bring the wisdom of our astral body and our eye into this etheric body, then we need something to reflect it back, just as we need the backing on the mirror when we want to see the reflection. We need the physical body as the backing. Just as we couldn't stand if we didn't have the physical ground beneath us, so we couldn't exist in our etheric body if it didn't border the physical body coming up against it at every point. So that the etheric body has a kind of backing in the physical body. Otherwise, the etheric body in its inner life would be like a human being floating in space without a basis. Thus, for normal earthly life, we have a soul life that lives in the etheric body but needs the physical body as a base. At this soul level, we can only access the mineral realm, we can only study the realm of the lifeless. If we want to access the plant realm, we need to be able to use the etheric body without the physical body. How can we do this? How can we use our etheric body without our physical body? We can do this if through inner exercises we gradually develop from people who live primarily in the element of gravity through their physical bodies Two people who live through light in the element of lightness, who through light feel themselves connected not to the earth, but to the vastness of the cosmos. When looking at the stars, the sun and the moon, the vastness of space becomes as familiar as looking at the plants growing in the fields. If we're just children of the earth, 
when we look at the plants growing in the fields and appreciate them, but we can't understand them because we're earthly human beings subject to gravity. But having developed into earthbound beings, if we could then find a relationship to the fields of the star-studded heavens, looking not down to the ground but up to the skies, if we could feel ourselves as related to all this as we are to the earth, then by transforming earthly consciousness into cosmic consciousness, we could begin to use our etheric body just as we do our physical one. Only then would we be able to begin to understand the world of plants. Plants aren't brought up from the earth. They're drawn up from the earth by the heavens. Goethe was filled with a longing for this as he was developing his metamorphosis of plants, and he described many aspects as if he felt himself to be a sun person instead of an earth-bound one, and had sensed how the sun had drawn the growth forces in the roots of the plant out of the earth, had sensed how the sun joined forces with the influence of the air to develop the leaf, and finally how the sun then gradually refined what it had drawn out of the earth into the form of the blossom and the fruit. You just have to read this wonderful text by Goethe, published in 1790, titled An Attempt to Interpret the Metamorphosis of Plants. And in several places you'll find the rudiments of this approach. Goethe yearned to understand the plant world, but he failed repeatedly to develop real etheric vision instead of physical vision. This is an impulse that Goethe already had and which, if we want to follow him, and I mean not the dead man but the real live Goethe, we have to develop further ourselves. For by sensing that when we are really conscious of our etheric body, our soul can achieve something like this, we can also sense our heavenly origins, our independence from the earth and from our position on it. The human soul can say to itself, You are of cosmic origin. You are placed on earth by dint of your physical human body, but your origins are cosmic. And when you feel joy at the sight of the plant world here, then that part of you that feels this joy is a child of the heavens, who can appreciate all the flora the heavens draw up out of the earth. We humans free ourselves from the earth by really grasping our etheric body or body of formative forces. When you do this, whereby love for the plant world is a great help, when you reach the stage of dwelling in the etheric body just as you otherwise do in the physical body, then not only do you become conscious of the etheric body, but just as through your physical body you become aware of the world of the senses, so through the etheric body you become conscious of the etheric world. What do we sense when through our etheric body we look into the ether world, just as through our physical body we look into the physical world? What do we see there? We see what for physical reality is the past out of which this physical world has developed. We see in spirit the images of what once existed, so that the present could evolve from it. 
Therefore, in ancient times, the first initiation given to human beings was the initiation of the cosmos. In humanity's oldest schools, they worked toward the initiation of the cosmos. The teachers of the first mysteries initiated people into this reading in the ether of the cosmos, which we could also call reading in chaos or reading in the Akasha Chronicle, reading what has passed and has created the present. So, basically, the first stage of initiation that humanity attained in their earthly existence was this cosmic initiation. We can then reach a second stage as follows. When we wake up, we let the astral body and the eye sink down into the physical and etheric bodies. We ensoul the etheric and the physical bodies and unite ourselves with them. However, we can only capture as much of the endless wisdom of the etheric body as we bring to it, but it animates us continually. If we have a good idea, then it's the etheric body with its intimate connection to the cosmic ether which has stimulated this idea. All the good ideas, the geniality that we develop in our waking life, come from the etheric body, and so ultimately from the cosmos. The genius speaks with the cosmos by way of the stimulation of the astral body through the etheric body. Even if someone doesn't understand this, it nevertheless holds true, and their soul life is still made up of the connection that the astral body and the eye make with the physical and etheric bodies on waking up. When we feel equally at home with the stars, as we do with the fields of the earth, and make the vastness of the universe the upper foundation of our existence, then we are able to experience the etheric. Human beings always exist in it, only they can't become conscious of it without initiation. In reality, everyone experiences it. When we look for a backing for our astral body, then it's always there. It's just a question of becoming aware through spiritual science of what exists in all human beings. Let's assume you couldn't see the physical ground, but still you're standing on it. And if through scientific study someone discovered the ground and informed you of this fact, you'd still be standing on it. Whether someone who's proficient in spiritual science tells you that you're rising up to the upper ground, to the star grounds, or not, in reality you're rising up nonetheless. Thus we humans inhabit another world through our astral body, a world of living spirit beings, the world of the higher hierarchies. Just as when we're in the physical world, When the physical world is our reality, we're surrounded by minerals, plants, and animals, and this is the soil out of which we've developed, so we humans exist through our astral body in the world of the higher hierarchies. Living in this world, we have the relevant backing mirror for our astral bodies. But we always carry this within us, whether we've learned from spiritual science or not and we carry this within us as the capacity to feel. All of the world that we make our own through our capacity for feeling, this most intimate soul life, this all consists of the weaving and flowing of the spirits of the higher hierarchies in our astral body. 
When we become conscious of our feeling, then at first we recognize an emotion. But in this feeling lives the weaving and flowing of the spirits of the higher hierarchies within us humans. We can't really grasp our soul life if we don't sense how the soul is immersed in the spirit worlds of the higher hierarchies. The past of our world of the senses is revealed to us through etheric vision. And so if we recreate in a modern way what was developed as the initiation of the cosmos in the earliest earthly mysteries, then the soul can develop such a depth that we can become conscious of what is going on in the astral body. To achieve this, we have to immerse ourselves lovingly in the relationship with the spiritual worlds that lived in the great mysteries. If we learn about the cosmos under the guidance of initiation wisdom, then we'll reach the first stage of soul reality. We could enter into the processes of the mysteries and read in the Akasha records not only the past of the stars, the past of the animals, the past of physical human beings, but read also what lived in the souls of the great teachers of the mysteries. And as I've tried to describe as best I could for present-day human beings in my title Christianity is Mystical Fact, we could activate in ourselves what the teachers of the mysteries had developed out of their interaction with actual spiritual beings, and then we'd be approaching an initiation, which in later earthly times appeared next to the cosmic initiation, and which I'd like to call the initiation of the sages. We can speak of two levels of initiation, initiation through the cosmos and initiation through the sages. What the sages taught as cosmic knowledge is the substance of cosmic initiation. Looking into the souls of those who preceded us in the life of the soul leads to the second level of soul being. We can start with this by studying external history. If we understand, really grasp, what still illuminates humanity from earlier times, for example the wonderful wisdom of the Vedanta and other ancient sources of wisdom, then, in turn, our own intrinsic vitality will grasp us and lead us to the initiation of the cosmos. And if we immerse ourselves intimately in what I've described in my Christianity as mystical fact, where I've tried to show the relationship of the old mysteries to the mystery of Golgotha, then we approach the initiation of the sages. In the present age, we have to look honestly into our own inner being and without partiality really get to know our own spirit, which lights up our soul from the inside. I'll speak more about this as the third level of initiation next time. This is the initiation of self-knowledge. When today spiritual science speaks of the soul, then it has to speak from the perspective of these three levels of initiation, initiation through the cosmos, initiation through the sages, and initiation through self-knowledge. This leads us through the various spheres of soul life. But it's not possible to take even the first steps on this path without love. And I have to say that the intellect of our times, which is developed to the highest degree, completely forgets love, loses love, 
Because of this, something specific happens. Only by being ready to listen to the genius of our times can we respond with love to what we describe as the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the eye. But are contemporary human beings capable of taking seriously what we mean by the genius of the age, as seriously as is its due? Isn't it just an empty abstract phrase for most people? Just think how far most people are from an understanding of the real living spirit that works and lives and weaves in our time, the genius of the age, the zeitgeist. Even though human beings deny the spirit, they are nevertheless not rid of it. The spirit is irrevocably connected to humanity. But if human beings reject the zeitgeist, then the demon of this age will appear. At the beginning of the last third of the nineteenth century, the intellect had progressed as far as following only the mechanism of the physical body and had itself become automatic and mechanical, attaining thus the highest levels and becoming extremely clever. But as the intellect developed an image of itself as mechanical and material, then it began to behave as people behave when they deny the spirit. Then the demon of the age took possession of it. The intellect had severed itself from the soul. Intellect became mechanical, soulless, and created the equivalent philosophy. It didn't have love, and so couldn't love wisdom philosophy. This philosophy could only be the intellectual image of earthly demonology, an earthly demonology which imagines the ideal machine that bores down to the center of the earth and then blows it up and out into the cosmos. Thus spake the demon of the age, the intellect of the age. We'll often have to listen to the demon of the age if we don't want to recognize the reality of the soul. Then the soul appears to the intellect as it would appear to human beings, if on waking up and immersing ourselves in our physical and etheric bodies, instead of uniting with them, we remained separate from them. For this intellect is a stranger to the true human being. It's made itself independent of the human being. An intellect that's connected to the human being will struggle up from earthly consciousness to higher states of consciousness. But an intellect that only connects itself to the earth severs itself from the human being and thus has only a reflection of the intellect and will relegate all other states of consciousness to the unconscious, the endless ocean of the unconscious. The human soul ceases to be aware of its heavenly origins and of its independence from earthly life. However, human soul life consists of this swinging back and forth from the physical to the spiritual. This pendulum is the life of the soul. If a person honestly believes that only the physical exists and not being able to completely deny the spirit relegates it to the unconscious, this is a denial of the life of the soul. Hartmann mused on the nemesis of the earth, as only someone can who's asleep in the physical body, but also clairvoyant in that same body, and so represents the agony of the earth intellectually. 
Meanwhile, a friend of his, with whom he frequently corresponded, was lying ill and in real agony, as many of his physical organs wouldn't allow the soul spiritual to unite with them. So he experienced the agonies of the earth in reality, and not just in thought, and could only express the soullessness of the times as satire. This is Robert Hammerling, who wrote his title Homunculus in the 1880s, whereby he shows the soullessness of the age in this character, who is only active in the outside world, earning more and more money, and becoming in the end a billionaire. The whole terrible prospect of the soulless age revealed itself before the eyes of his soul. And Hammerling lets this soulless billionaire, the homunculus, who was conceived and born without the participation of the soul, mechanically in a laboratory, marry a soulless elementary spirit, the mermaid Lorelei. Robert Hammerling saw this whole prospect of the soulless age in the struggle of human beings and the world of matter, their intellect devoid of spirit, which in nature spirits is normal, but which in humans arouses all the forces of destruction right up to the demonically addictive, destructive wish to blow the whole earth up and out into the cosmos. Hammerling could only deal with this problem of the soulless age as satire, A new civilization, a new culture, needs soul. We can only develop this soul when we illuminate our earthly experiences in the light of spirit knowledge. So, the cleverest man of our times has put the issue before us in the most frightening manner, and that other person who sensed most tragically where this cleverness leads us, experienced it firsthand as physical suffering, and has given us his vision as satire. Now through spiritual cognition, we must transform this into the soul perspective, which we must strive to achieve. Yesterday we talked about the physical perspective, today about the soul perspective, and tomorrow we'll talk about the spiritual perspective. The end of Lecture 9